0: the prime minister obviously can talk to whomever he wants but what i am trying to do is to protect him i am just um issuing the strongest warning i can possibly issue that decisions that are made by the independent prosecutor are their decisions we gave we gave her and them the tools the additional tools i made it very clear at the cabinet table and in other places that these tools are the discretion of the prosecutor and everybody agreed to that. And there was no guarantee that there would be a DPA in this or any other case. So we were treading on dangerous ground here.
1: That uh, just one small part of the audio recording released on Friday, uh, Jody Wilson-Raybould speaking with uh, Michael Wernick. And uh, as you can imagine, there has been much response to this. There is continuing, uh, that is continuing and will continue uh, for the foreseeable future. So let's bring in Jennifer Quaid, who is a law professor at the University of Ottawa, also an expert in corporate to criminal liability. Uh, Jennifer Quaid, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Jill. Uh, you've been responding to this as well uh, on Twitter and other avenues. What is is your takeaway after listening to uh, that recording and what was released on Friday?
0: Well, so I'm I think that the clip you played was actually a part that I found the most interesting out of the entire um the entire uh, audio recording. Um, you obviously can, you know, evaluate the significance of this recording at more than one level and in more than one way. But for me, as a as somebody who's interested in this area and who's interested in how this law is going to be applied, I found that that little clip you played confirmed something that had not been expressly said, which was whether or not the decision to invite a company is. Something that was intended to be in the discretion of the prosecutor, uh, and that was really you know expected to be something that's you know like other settlement decisions. And pretty much what Jody Wilson-Raybould says on that clip is, yes, that was always the understanding. Everyone on around the cabinet table agreed. That to me uh, situates Jody wilson rayboulds position in a, on a much stronger ground because if everyone understood that this was you know a going to be a tool in the toolbox at the discretion of prosecutors who will evaluate it like they evaluate many other decisions to do with prosecution, then, you know, the ability to come in and say that other things should bear upon it or that we should keep insisting on revisiting and, uh, you know, suggesting the attorney general, she should exercise her exceptional power to issue a directive. You know, that to me, it just all makes it look a lot more like uh, you know, SNC and c made its pitch to the prosecutors. The decision didn't go that way. And then other efforts were brought to bear on the system to, uh, to try and perhaps revisit that decision. And, and, you know, when you put it like that, it's very hard to defend those kinds of actions. So to me, it, it's made some clarity. But, you know, there's other questions. And one of them is about the propriety of having recorded the conversation. I think there's also probably, although it's, you know, I don't know what people's intentions were here. Um, clearly, uh, Jody Wilson-Ribald indicates that she had been subject to a lot of conversations of this nature. That's certainly what she was, you know, suggesting. So this wasn't the first one, and I probably wasn't the last one either. Um, but there's the way the recording is, presented, I'm sure you notice that you know her answers are very clear. It's it's almost like they've been they've set out, you know, some of us have said it's like reading into the record. You want certain things to be there and clear. And I think, you know, Michael Wernick, who didn't know that the conversation was being recorded, of course doesn't speak with quite the same sort of assurance and clarity and, and you know, his answers aren't as organized. So the only thing that kind of niggles at me is that, you know, this was obviously, you know Ms. wilson Wilson-Raybould knew she was going to record this conversation so she was really ready and prepared and said all the right things and, and that can come across as sort of setting up Michael Wernick to look in a certain light but I you know if you if you leave leaving that aside and I'm not an expert on the ethics you know people are debating about whether it was or was not a good idea you know and whether she could be sanctioned for it but I, I think you know obviously there's there's some concern about about doing that but over and above that I think that what she expresses, and and if you take at face value what she says, she's concerned for the Prime Minister's sake. She says please send the message to the Prime Minister. I cannot issue a strong enough warning. So if we take her words at, 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 you know, the way they were, they sound, she's doing this out of a strong sense of duty and obligation and, you know, that you can tell that the way the conversation ends, it's not clear that she was successful in conveying that message.
1: What's really astounding, though, is apparently that message was not apparently was not given to the prime minister. Right. Which I think many people are having difficulty taking at face value that that was never conveyed to the prime minister because everybody went on holidays the next day.
0: Yeah. Now, I mean,
1: if you want to try to,
0: again, I don't know what people's intentions are and, you know, I, I can't necessarily assume the worst. Um, but let's say that if this kind of conversation had been ha- had on more than one occasion, between Ms. Wilson-Raybould and, and people in the PMO or Mr. Wernick or others, then perhaps they didn't feel that there was anything new to bring to the attention of the prime minister, you know, that hadn't already been said. That said, you know, the, the way the call sounds, uh, it certainly sounds like she was she was being a little more insistent and that this was coming, you know, in the timeline, the day after a meeting between her chief of staff and, Gerald butts and some some others so maybe she really felt that you know things were reaching a point where it was becoming more critical than it had been before but I would caution and I mean that lawyers will tell you this you have to be careful when one piece of evidence gets plucked out of the pile this is one recording of all the telephone and other conversations that were had all the others were sort of transcribed in notes or summarized so that tends to make this one look, more important and we tend to pay more attention to it because it feels like we can be right there and you know right in the moment and i i also you know worry that not that the the call itself isn't perhaps you know doesn't provide us information but you know it's one piece in a larger puzzle it's just much more visible because we can all listen to it
1: Right, it's the one piece that we have, so we can we, right. we, we can all be witnesses we can all we can all listen to what exactly was said, uh, but that raises another question as well, in that had Jody Wilson raybould been invited back, had the justice committee not shut down that avenue, had she been allowed to come back and offer more testimony and and been given a bigger uh, bigger scope to talk about, uh, this phone call may never have been released. We might not have ever known about it.
0: Yeah, I mean, there are, again, conflicting interpretations of what to make of this. I mean, some people say, well, if she had this recording, she should have alluded to that already. Um, I mean, which she's positioned herself, and I think, you know, she must have had advice, as far as I'm concerned, because everyone, everyone acting in this arena has advice. (laughs) No one is just uh, shooting from the hip here. Um, I, I think she must have felt that this, you know, in the when she was first called to testify that she maybe didn't need to reveal the recording because taking her explanation at face value, she did the recording because she didn't have someone to take notes for her while she was speaking to Michael Wernick because she was at home in Vancouver and not, you know, surrounded by staff. Let's take that, you know, as it is. Uh, so maybe she felt that she she could listen to the recording, refresh her memory, just the way she read notes, and then, um, you know, could go to the committee. But then when the committee asked for the, the supporting documentation, like the text messages and so on, then I guess at that point, maybe that the, ra- the rationale is, you know, we should bre- provide the recording. But some people feel she should have come forward with that right away. I mean, others, of course, think she shouldn't have done the recording at all. Um, so it's, it's, I don't know that, you know, there's a consensus about what the right thing to do, but it's for sure now that it's come out, everyone is paying attention to it. But again, I, I worry about the fact that this particular conversation has has come out and, and there are there are others and and we don't know we only know what's on the recording. We don't know what else was around that necessarily the way she would have and Mr. Warnick would have. But it's it's certainly um I, I think that uh, one of the things we have to think about, you know, those of us who are commenting and uh, and the various actors, is at what point at what point do you do you sort of say we we've we've dug deep enough, or that if we need to dig deeper, we have to be more systematic about it and more um, more organized because the way it's you know this is, we're into our seventh eighth week of this since it broke on the seventh of February. And um, it just seems to be a constant, like, dribbling out of information, revelations upon revelations that sort of add color and context. And I worry about the collateral impact on perception of the administration of justice, on the perception of politicians, on the perception of how government business is done in relation to matters of criminal justice. And so, you know, I think we want to know what happened and we, we should we should try to thrive to do that. But I think maybe now the time has come to maybe the Justice Committee is not. I, I now wonder whether we really do need some sort of inquiry or something, because the way this is going, this is, I think, very damaging for almost everybody. <laughs> and I'm not sure it's serving the public interest. Whereas if we if we put somebody sort of in charge who doesn't have a political agenda and it's really about fact finding, and trying to ascertain what happened, and then to learn lessons from it. I mean, it has to there has to be an objective in collecting all this information. Then maybe you know we would get somewhere. But I worry that if this just keeps dribbling on. I it's sort of sucking all the oxygen out of discussions about other important issues. And and as much as I am interested in this area, I I'm not sure that we should be only talking about this and sort of obsessing over every. Uh, fact, But maybe that's just me feeling tired.
1: <laughs> well, I also think, too, and you raise an interesting point when talking about perhaps in an inquiry could do this, in that for me also, one of the things is there is so much attention now uh, being uh, being put on whether or not it was ethical to record the call. Uh, people thinking it's illegal to do that. It's not illegal to do that. Uh, but we're talking about that rather than talking about the original reason for this story, in that the allegation is that a, a prime minister, tried, the allegation is that he tried to interfere in a criminal proceeding for political gain and if that's the case then yes please let the inquiry look into that and figure out if that happened
0: yeah i think so i mean and there's debate you know it, it, along with the propriety of recording the other question that floats around there uh, as i as you know is is a question about whether the right response was to resign or to stay and i think that there are Conflicting opinions on that, in part based on what your perception of the conventions are in a Westminster parliamentary democracy. But I also think, at the risk of inviting a lot of comments, um, that there is perhaps something else at play in terms of how politics is typically done and what happens when you get, let's say, people who are not as well represented in politics who start assuming those roles and maybe not. Play, maybe doing them differently or trying to do them in a way that they think is the right way and getting, uh, you know, pushed back on. So, you know, there are more women, more people in, from visible minorities in politics, and, and maybe we're seeing some things that are happening here that might play into that as well. I mean, I don't know, but it just seems people are very critical about her decision to take a principled stand. And I I don't know, it, you know, the expectation that she should fall on her sword and resign. I, I don't know that it's as clear cut as as some are suggesting. So, you know, in addition to, uh, these are other things that maybe an inquiry could look at, you know, in terms of uh, maybe getting a little bit into those conventions. I I would hate for us to get to the point where we have to make rules, black and white rules. You must resign now and you must not, but at least to get some understanding, uh, because I I can speak for myself, but I think many other people had not really ever thought about the Shaw Cross doctrine (laughs) and how it would play out in this, context but we've suddenly been confronted with a real circumstance and I suppose that we take a step back you know the political interference question is the start of this right is whether or not there was interference in a prosecution but but even if we take a further step back I mean there is a, a legitimate issue about how you pa- pa- balance and this is the job of government how you balance competing priorities and you know accountability for for committing a crime is an important value but so is you know Figuring out how to maintain a, a functioning, strong economy, you know, in a country that you know, we are a small country in a in a big world, next to a big trading partner, and, and we're an export oriented company country. So, you know, I think there were real policy considerations, you know, behind the SMC case. I what I think is unfortunate is that I I'm not sure what the intentions were. Obviously, I can't speak for what the Liberals have had in mind. But they, they chose an approach to addressing perhaps a real concern. Like I think it's, there's a real case to be made that SNC that we should be doing something about it, or at least that that's a worthy conversation to have. But they chose to try to do it through the criminal justice system, and I think that was a mistake. Um, and, and so, you know, we do have to have these conversations about how we balance, you know, holding to account and the fact that there's a lot of consequences, but, uh, but you know, we... It wasn't done in a way that was productive this time around, and, and in fact, has had huge collateral consequences that I think no one anticipated.
1: Uh, it really blew up, right? Mm-hmm. So I, that's another thing that an uh, inquiry may look at. Yeah, indeed. All right. Well, Jennifer, we'll have to leave it there. So sorry, we're out of time, but thank you so much for joining us today to talk about this. I appreciate it. Well, thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. All right. Jennifer Quaid, law professor at the University of Ottawa, also an expert in corporate criminal liability. We have uh, been talking a fair amount about housing in uh, homelessness. So we talked about it yesterday on the program and a bit later on today. In about an hour from now, we'll open up the phone lines. Uh, your take on this issue and uh, in light of the rally that was held in Maple Ridge yesterday. We'll talk a bit more about that. Uh, but let's now bring in Mike Klassen, who's a columnist uh, with the Vancouver Courier. Mike, thanks so much for being with us. Good morning, Jill. Good morning. You've written as well about uh, just how bad Vancouver wants affordable housing. And I'm glad you've touched on this because uh, something that we often hear is that people will agree, yes, we need more density, yes, we need uh, more spaces, uh, more units built, but wait a minute, don't build them here. We don't want the density here. We don't have the infrastructure here, Uh, which leads to the other question, okay, well, where do we build it then and how do we make it more affordable? Uh, So talk a bit, if you can, about what you touch on in the column.
2: Sure thing. Well, it, you, as you sort of summed up there, there is a uh, definitely a neighborhood resistance that happens. But, you know, it seems to me that um, this subject of affordable housing, it's been the principal topic of uh, past election campaigns, both municipally and, and uh, provincially. Um, there's an enormous amount of political rhetoric, rhetoric that goes in around uh, affordable housing with one announcement after another of some new grant that's going to make some new housing development happen, and you would think from just reading the headlines and reading social media that that's all people think about uh, constantly. But um, when it comes, when sort of the rubber hits the road, it is difficult to see where there really is um, a kind of a political urgency um, and and a willingness for people to sort of to, to you know accept the fact that there's going to be. Uh, a need for some changes in the, in the complexion of some of our communities.
1: And that's been a topic, certainly, even in the previous council, yeah. uh, talking about rezoning, allowing for more density. And, and, and anytime, like you said, anytime there is that conversation, though, there is a, a whole lot of pushback.
2: There is. And, you know, and, and there's a lot of, you know, I don't like to say blame, but there's, you know, there's a lot of responsibility that goes around. Um, you know, for example, I've said for a long time, and, and I know, you know, some of the folks in this sector, but the development community does a very poor job of kind of selling what they do. Apart from, you know, obviously, glossy, uh, you know, marketing brochures about, you know, new condos and things like that, they don't really do a very good job of engaging communities and sort of talking about community benefits and sort of working that ground. It's, it's really important. They don't do it, and so they get a bit of a failing grade. Um, and then um, from the standpoint of the political class, I mean, you know, we like to heap a lot of blame on the previous Vision Council, but there really was no urgency. Like, I, mean, I talked to people who are housing in the housing business and, and, and nonprofit housing and non-market housing, and, you know, you would think that if there, you're going to use the word crisis, you would actually throw some serious resources and, 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 and strategy against that. You would really mobilize people to kind of... Um, you know, give that sense of urgency to the problem and, and really work on it and come up with solutions and get that community buy-in. But it it, it feels like everything's just been kind of slow locked um, since the whole debate started a few years ago about affordable housing. I mean, we've had one task force after another. I mean, we, you know, and yet we keep hearing about delays in building permits and how hard it is. I mean, literally tomorrow, if you wanted to say you bought a piece of property, it's going to take you, you know, seven years to get you know, people living there—that's ridiculous. So there has to be, I think, a bit more sort of political accountability. And certainly, we have got, you know, as I mentioned in my column, quite a number of sort of political, um, you know, politicians, political figures right around the region who are now kind of making anti-density as kind of a kind of a key sort of talking point. So in uh, districts in there, Vancouver, uh, Port Moody, and even the Green Party, I think here in Vancouver have you know, for all of their talk of environmental sustainability have been really pushing against uh, making sort of more walkable, more dense, um, more concentrated neighborhoods, which really does reduce greenhouse emissions. So, you know, there's a lot of a lot of uh, responsibility to go around.
1: And you mentioned that. And last weekend on the show, we were talking about. Uh, well, Adrian Carr joined us to talk about uh, the issues that she has and her fellow councillor Jean Swanson uh, with Rental One Hundred, saying that the the prices are too high. Uh, that perhaps some of the perks given to developers don't lead the end result is not this affordable housing that it's supposed to supply. But you touch on this in the column as well, in that who is going to pay if we're if we're suddenly going to build all of this housing that is below market value uh, that people can. Live in somebody at some point. The money has to come from somewhere.
2: Yeah, there's a couple. And I, um, you know, I think that they make a good point in in the sense that um, when these uh, rental 100 programs were set up, um, they there were no covenants put on the units themselves that they would maintain the the, their sort of rents. And of course, they are market rents. And that's that's. (laughs) I actually sat on a committee. Uh, back in 2008 with the City Planning Commission about affordable housing and during those meetings we kept having to stop ourselves and saying are we talking about affordable housing or just more housing and so uh, that's the thing here is that we've kind of been sold that rental is going to be affordable but market rents for new units are very expensive I I use it's kind of a poor analogy but I said it's kind of like buying a new car when you drive a new car off the lot you're paying the full sticker price, but if, you wait, if it has some time to get a few hundred thousand or you know, a few tens of thousands of kilometers on the, on the vehicle, you can actually get it at a lower price. Well, we just don't have the supply in the marketplace to allow people that. So everybody's kind of buying you know, uh, brand new units or renting brand new units, and they're expensive. So um, that's a bit of a failure in, in not building rental for, for several decades
1: right and even even if we did the the difference between uh, the housing and, and vehicles is that housing even the older housing it still appreciates and still becomes more expensive
2: you know and and there's and something that I, I suppose hasn't been lost on some people, but even if you build these rental buildings and um, and after a number of years, see what happens is the developers assume a lot of the risk up front, right they have to cover the mortgages, they have to pay the you know con- the contractors and all the rest of it. Once those pay uh, all that um, costs are sort of amortized over sort of twenty thirty years, they now own a very valuable piece of property that they already already received a number of sort of perks from from municipal governments to try and help them build it so with uh, zoning relaxations and relaxations and parking and all the rest of it. so I think where um, car is coming down is saying that we need to have some level of non market housing. problem is is that they don't really have a strategy on what that means. So if even if you were to say one out of every five units in in a rental building was going to be below market, who gets that? And um, I think there's a really clear case to be made that there are certain segments of the service economy, and I'm talking about healthcare workers and teachers and all the rest of it, that are really vital to to, to, uh, the sustainability of our city, they probably could use those brakes more because, you know, we need them to be working here uh, to, to do the services we need to to kind of run the city. So, um, you know, that's a, that's a whole other strategy, but it's something that needs to be factored into the mix.
1: All right, Mike, we will leave it there. Thank you so much for joining us to talk about this today.
2: You're welcome, Jill. Have a great day.
1: You too. That is Mike Klassen, a columnist with the Vancouver Courier. You can catch uh, that column in the Courier. And a bit later on in the program, after the 8.30 news, uh, we will open up the phone lines. Uh, and uh, touching on this topic today, uh, not only in Vancouver, uh, in light of what's happening in Maple Ridge, in some other places in Metro Vancouver and the Lower Mainland, uh, your thoughts on housing, on the issue of homelessness, and uh, what can be done if there are solutions uh, to be had out there. Thanks for being with us. Well, some new research done by Research Co. finds that the biggest etiquette faux pas in Canada, the thing that agitates people the most, is swearing. So to talk more about this, so we are joined by Mario Conseco. He is the president of Research Co. And Mario, good morning. How the f- are you? <laughs>
3: I'm doing remarkably well this morning. Thank you. How about you?
1: <laughs> Good. We didn't even rehearse that, and it seemed to work. There we go.
3: <laughs> it was beautiful.
1: Uh, this is interesting because you looked at a whole bunch of different things that would be considered a pretty big faux pas, uh, and swearing came out uh, as the one people uh, really don't like. Yeah, that was pretty high. We see 64% of Canadians saying that they saw somebody...
3: Uh, who swore in public over the past month, uh, the number climbed all the way to 71% in Alberta. Now, I don't know if that has a lot to do with the way they talk regularly or because there's a political campaign going on right now, but there's definitely a higher percentage there. The lowest, which was quite shocking, was Quebec at only 51%. So either they are uh, essentially being very cautious about the words they use or maybe... They have just become so uh, used to them that they don't even notice them.
1: <laughs> did it? Did it go into specifics on what particular swear word was the biggest faux pas? Uh no, not, not
3: not this time. You know, this this has been quite successful. So I do want to do something that's a little more uh, juicy and meaty when it comes to specific words that we don't like or, or things that we don't want to 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 hear. This one was more basic in the sense of certain things that you're looking at your. Uh, looking in your everyday life that you're you're not particularly happy with. Uh,
1: Because it also takes a a look at uh, things like children behaving badly in public while their parents uh, do nothing, uh, littering, leaving trash behind in a public place, uh, people interrupting others while they're talking, which I might have thought would would score higher uh, than public swearing. Yeah, that was quite interesting
3: because, you know, you, you do see a situation here related to how you perceive other people's behaviors. And littering, for instance, I thought it was going to be higher on the list because I noticed it more, I guess. Uh, but there's only 49% of Canadians, well, I guess only, not such a good way of saying it. You know, it's essentially half of us saying that we saw somebody who was littering um, and, you know, one of the things that is quite interesting here is there's a little bit of a generational gap, particularly when it comes to children behaving badly. There's 56 percent of Canadians who say that they saw somebody or they saw children behaving badly in public while their parents looked the other way. Um, but the number is quite high when it comes to those over the age of 55. So we may be looking into different ways of parenting here also and not necessarily um, somebody who saw this and said it's not OK, but younger parents who say, oh, just let them be their kids, let them destroy the restaurant.
1: <laughs> right. Um, it also takes a look at driving habits, uh, somebody cutting them off the road while driving. I was surprised, too, of uh, 47%. I thought that might have been higher.
3: Yes. Well, you know, I have, I, I have asked over the past couple of years a lot about drivers. And, and it was interesting because we, we don't see a situation here where there's a lot of change related to generations, even though the over 55 tend to remember this more. Um, whenever I ask about drivers, you have the two generations fighting. You have the 18 to 34-year-olds who are saying uh, those old drivers are too slow and should get off the road. And you have the over 55s who are essentially saying the young kids don't know how to drive and they're a menace. So this is one of those beautiful times where being middle-aged is perfect.
1: <laughs> one of those times, so yes. Um, checking a phone or texting during a meeting or at a social event, uh, that's also something uh, that people uh, were asked about. Yeah,
3: technology, how it plays a role in how we communicate with each other. If we go back to the early days of the cell phones in the late 1980s, early 1990s, you would stop your conversation and take the phone somewhere else if somebody was calling you, if it was really important, and you said to somebody, excuse me, I need to take this, I'm going to move away. You wouldn't take a phone call in a restaurant, you wouldn't take a phone call at the movies. And what we see here is that there's a high uh, number of uh, Canadians who are re- Uh, reporting seeing somebody who checked their phone or was texting during a meeting. Uh, We also see 34 percent who used their cell or who saw somebody who used their cell phone during a movie. I mean, this is ridiculous. People are when when you go to the movies, there's reminders uh, not to do this. And there's still a lot of Canadians who are uh, seeing this behavior happening in the theaters all over the country.
1: Uh, One of the things that I I absolutely detest, and thankfully I don't see it very often, but I do still see it, uh, people spitting in public. And that was on this as well.
3: Oh, I know. 43% of Canadians saw somebody spitting in public. Uh, Once again, if you're 55, who notice it more. But this is something that wasn't particularly great for our great province. Um, 50% in British Columbia. We have the highest incidence of reported spitting uh, in Canada uh, more than anywhere else. And, you know, we are thankfully uh, way behind those Wild West days of the spittoons and the tobacco chewing, but we still see 50% of D.C. residents saying that they saw somebody spit in public.
1: Yeah, gross. Just, uh, yeah, know. not not the one you want to come in uh, at the highest percentage on, for sure. Uh, were there any other uh, differences in uh, percentages from province to province uh, that, you, that you thought stood out?
3: Well, one of the things where we did very well was we also tested two... Good things, you know. We had a, a lot of uh, things on the list that we definitely don't want to see, but I, I wanted to have a couple of of, of good things and, and see whether they, they worked. And one of them where were did better than the rest was uh, giving up your seat for a person who is disabled, pregnant, or elderly. So thirty-two percent compared to the uh, Canadian average of twenty-seven percent. So we seem to be more polite in that situation, which was, you know, some. It, it was uh, almost like a silver lining in a way. Uh, the other one were. Um, most Canadians did very well. Was holding a door open for a stranger? 63% in Canada, 61% in BC, which is a little bit lower than the average. But Atlantic Canada, at 79%. If you're carrying something heavy, be in the Maritimes because somebody will hold the door open for
4: you.
1: <laughs> That's and that. I mean, it's good that the percentage is that high, but it's also a bit a bit sad that it's not that high right across the country because it seems like a no-brainer if somebody's has a stroller or somebody has a bunch of packages or bags as as if you don't hold the door open for them
3: yes it's it's this is one of the issues where you really want the numbers to climb and i think we can agree that there are some other issues where you want the numbers to drop dramatically particularly uh, when it comes to issues related to uh, behavior and I mean spinning was definitely off the charts for me. I thought it was going to be in the thirties, but to see it at forty-three percent and fifty percent in BC was a wake-up call.
1: And I also found it interesting that while swearing was was top of the list, someone making an obscene gesture only at about thirty-three percent.
3: Yeah, thirty-three uh, percent. Also, Alberta wins this one by a, by a couple of touchdowns. It's forty-three percent in Alberta compared to thirty-three percent in the rest of the country. So there's something about Uh, the colorful language and gestures of Albertans right now. And, you know, I I really want to check this probably within the next year to see if this uh, is lower or higher. Uh, They are going through this political campaign right now, which has been quite contentious. So that may have something to do with it. Mm,
1: Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It would be interesting to know if it is because of that political climate right now or if that's just how people respond and react to interact with each other in Alberta.
3: Yes, we, we will have to wait and see. I mean, I, one of the shocking things for me was Quebec is, is very low on, on, on many of, of these things. And, you know, we, we used to have this situation going back 20, 30 years ago where they had more colorful language and were more likely to be gesturing. Uh, they're roughly at the Canadian average right now. So maybe something is changing in Quebec.
1: Hmm, Interesting. All right. Anything else in the survey that we haven't touched on?
3: Well, one of the things that I definitely despise is uh, calling the line at a store or counter, and it's a little bit lower than it was when I asked in the past at 39%. But we continue to see a situation where this is affecting women more. 45% of women say that they saw somebody calling the line at a store or a counter compared to 33%. So it's time to get a little bit of that chivalry going on, gentlemen. <laughs> well,
1: that's that's one of the things, too, that if I ever witness that, I'm the first one to call someone out or or to 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 tell them, hey, oh, you must be mistaken. The line is actually back here. This is where the line goes to because it's 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 an incredibly rude thing to do.
3: It it definitely. Is. I mean, I do remember uh, when the Beijing Olympics were were happening. There was this campaign in China explaining to people, "Look, you gotta line up. We're gonna have a bunch of people coming from other places. They will line up. You will line up." And it worked very well for the Olympics. I don't know if it uh, stuck or not.
1: Yeah, well, it seems like we need that refresher course every single time people are boarding a plane. So I don't know if if we're anywhere closer to getting rid of that or not.
3: <laughs> well, maybe that 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 should be the next one. You know, we we have done etiquettes in our daily life, I think the next one should be etiquette on a plane because there are so many examples that we
1: can think of. Oh, I think that would be a great one. Claire Newell would be all over that one.
3: Definitely. I'll be ready then.
1: (laughs) All right, Mario, thank you so much. Appreciate you coming on the show today. Thanks.
3: My pleasure, Jill. Thank
1: you. That is Mario Canseco, the president of Research Co. Uh, do you agree with the findings? Uh, what is the one thing or things uh, that you see when out in public? Is it people swearing? Is it the rude gesture? Is it the cutting in line? Is it rude customer service? Is it uh, people interrupting uh, conversations? Is it people texting when they should be paying attention to the person right in front of them? If you want to join that conversation, by all means, give the buzz line a call. 604 331 604-331-2899. You can email me as well, jbennett, that's j-b-e-n-n-e-t-t at cknw.com If you want to uh, send me an email and let me know what's on your mind this morning. Thanks for being with us on this sunny Sunday morning. Well, changes are coming to ICBC. We knew these were coming, all part of the uh, bit of an overhaul of the uh, insurance corporation. As of April 1st, tomorrow, there will be the cap on motor vehicle accident claims that involve pain and suffering for minor injuries. Uh, There will also be the establishment of a tribunal, that's a civil resolution tribunal, to handle certain claims. So a few changes coming to ICBC. Uh, Joining me to talk a bit more about this is Rick McMillan, who is a personal injury lawyer with CBM Lawyers, also a former RCMP officer. Uh, Rick McMillan, thanks so much for being with us.
4: Nice to be with you.
1: Uh, What is your take on what will we see or do you think will have the biggest impact as far as changes coming to ICBC?
4: Well, the changes that are going to go into effect tomorrow are the most significant changes to our uh, motor vehicle insurance laws since ICBC was created back in the 1970s. And uh, as of today and previous to today, a person who is injured through no fault of their own was entitled to be fully compensated for any um, wage loss or out-of-pocket treatment expenses And they were also entitled to be compensated for pain and suffering, loss of enjoyment of life, and the interference that the injuries have had in their normal lifestyle and activities. And if there was a dispute between the not at fault injured person and ICBC, then it was a court who would determine what would be fair and appropriate compensation uh, for uh, that injured person to receive. That's all changing as of tomorrow with respect to what are deemed to be minor injuries and uh, in my view, the the definition of minor injuries uh, is is very broad uh, and, uh, in my opinion, uh, far beyond what most people would consider to be a minor injury.
1: Uh, And is some of the concern being an injury that you receive in a car crash, a vehicle crash, might seem minor in the beginning and it might be something that maybe doesn't show up or you don't actually know the scope of it for several weeks or even months?
4: Yes, and, and of course, under the, 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 under the new definition of, of what a minor injury it is, it, it, it essentially refer, refers to any physical or mental injury um, that is expected to resolve within 12 months and does not result in what's called a serious impairment. And, and a serious impairment is essentially um, defined as an inability to work or go to school or perform uh, uh, the, the essential activities of daily living. It it, it does not take into account long-term pain. So if you're able to work or go to school um, and you have long-term and are expected to have long-term chronic pain, you still can be caught within the minor uh, injury definition, which will limit uh, compensation for pain and suffering and loss of enjoyment of life to a maximum of $5,500.
1: So what would happen then if somebody is in that scenario and under the new rules, uh, which uh, start tomorrow, so the $5,500 cap is in place, what happens if a year down the road you still have residual uh, health problems because of this um, and that you perhaps didn't see? Is there any recourse at that point?
4: No, uh, unless you unless you meet the definition of serious uh, impairment, um, it doesn't matter that you're going to have long-term pain. Uh, and if you can go to work and, and do your job or go to school and, and do your studies or, or do most of the, your essential activities of home, such as household chores and things like that, it doesn't matter if you're going to be in long-term pain. You're still going to be limited to that uh, $5,500 uh, maximum. Uh, now, the government uh, through I- and ICBC are changing no-fault accident, accident benefits and, and wage loss benefits to increase those. But those also go to the not uh, to the at fault party as well. So the at fault party is actually going to be better off under the new laws than the not at fault party, uh, the person who's injured through no fault of their own. So these new benefits uh, go into effect um, uh, tomorrow as well. But they mainly benefit um, uh, the main benefit is to the at fault uh, at fault party because they were getting reduced benefits before, where the not at fault party under our tort law, was entitled to be fully compensated uh, at at the end of the day for all reasonable out-of-pocket treatment expenses. Uh, So the main goal of the government is to uh, reduce the cost to ICBC at the expense of uh, not at fault injured people. And as a side benefit, the people who cause the accidents are actually going to get increased uh, accident benefits under the new scheme.
1: Hmm. The the whole point of this, uh, when the government announced these changes, came on the heels, I believe, of the Ernst and Young report, which took a look at claims and claim activity uh, during the past few years. Uh, found that the pain and suffering claims had increased something like two hundred and sixty five percent in the last nineteen years. Uh, so, what do you what is your take on the fact that the government's uh, reason for doing this is that these claims have gone out of control?
4: Well, I think. Uh... I think a lot. A lot of it has to do with with ICBC's management of the system. Um, I, there's also been issues with with the government, uh, go- previous governments using, uh, taking money out of ICBC's reserves. Uh, I think that has more to do with it. I mean, th- the bottom line is judges, up until tomorrow, determined what a person should receive for pain and suffering and loss of enjoyment of life. At the end of the day, if an an agreement couldn't be reached between the injured person and ICBC. And by the way, we've always had a cap on pain and suffering in Canada. Uh, It was established in 1978 by the Supreme Court of Canada uh, at $100,000 index for inflation. And that now today would be about $380,000 in in current uh, dollars. So you think of the worst possible injury you could imagine. You lose both your arms and both your legs. You may get that $380,000 maximum, and then everybody was scaled back from there. So the, the less serious injuries, the courts would award lower amounts. But it was an independent court who decided what uh, compensation you should receive, uh, not ICBC or, or, or the government.
1: Uh, so do you think that the, the establishment, though, of a civil resolution tribunal, will that take the place of that in an effective way?
4: Well, I think that there's some real serious concerns with the new Civil Resolution Tribunal because it is not a court. Um, So first of all, uh, the adjudicators on the Civil Resolution Tribunal are appointed uh, of terms between two and four years. So they are, uh, unlike a judge who's appointed until retirement, absent some serious misconduct. So a judge has independence. Uh, They don't have to worry about the government reappointing them uh, to keep their job the adjudicators uh, will have to worry about cabinet reappointing them uh, at at the end of their term, which is a maximum of four years. So I have some serious concerns about uh, the true independence of these adjudicators uh, when they're dependent on the government for their reappointment.
1: Uh, there also seems to be a, a bit of a flurry of activity when it comes to lawsuits that have been filed in the past couple of weeks uh, leading up to this date, that we knew things were changing April 1st, uh, people filing them. And I guess there's some fear that the definitions might change and that a brain injury isn't currently listed as, as minor, uh, but perhaps that'll change or there'll be some uh, murky places there. Uh, what do you think about it? Uh, do, have you heard about that, that there has been this flurry of activity? Or that people are fearful on what's going to happen from April first on.
4: Well, I think there's been a flurry of activity, but it's probably unnecessary because the new legislation applies to accidents that happen on or after April first. So any accident uh, that occurred prior to April first is it will be dealt with under the current uh, the current tort system. So it doesn't matter about the timing of the lawsuit. What's what's key is is, is the date uh, uh, of the accident. And so any if you were injured or anyone was injured in a car accident today, they would be under the current system. If they're injured in a car accident tomorrow, they're under the new system. So the flurry of activity is probably unnecessary and maybe being some overcautious lawyers filing early, but it really is dependent on, on the date of the accident.
1: And there are other jurisdictions that that have similar caps when it comes to pain and suffering, and have uh, similar uh, already had in place uh, some of the changes that are coming to ICBC. Uh, can we learn from those other jurisdictions?
4: Well, I think I, I mean certainly we're we're looking at at, at some other jurisdictions. I, I, there's no jurisdiction that I'm aware of that has um, I, this is a made in BC uh, system. It does take elements from other jurisdictions in Canada but there is no um no system in canada that is is exactly like this and for example alberta has a minor injury definition but it's still the courts that deal with uh, with determining whether someone has a minor injury not a civil resolution tribunal which which uh, most lawyers are of the view is is not an indep- a totally independent body because they're dependent on the government for for reappointment so there are some similarities there are some provinces that have pure no fault systems uh, which is like a, a WCV for auto accident injuries, um, but nothing that is. Um, and I think what the government has done here is try to make it as as, as broad uh, uh, as possible to catch as many cl- injuries within the minor injury definition um, as they can in order to limit costs. So they've they've looked at where um, uh, it hasn't been broad enough in other provinces. Uh, in order to restrict people's ability to get compensation uh, as much as possible.
1: Uh, so, do you, are you under the impression then that the changes are more as a cost-saving measure uh, for ICBC and for this government to try and deal with the many, many issues with ICBC, or is it more that the, the government believes that there has been an abuse of the system, there have been too many people lawyering up and going for huge claims when maybe they shouldn't actually have been getting them?
4: Well, I think, I think, obviously, I think the government, is, it, it, it's all about saving money at the expense of not at fault injured people. I mean, you have to remember that at the end of the day, first of all, the overwhelming majority, probably 95% of cases or more, never go to trial. They're settled by agreement between the parties. And the ones that do go to trial, there's where ICBC and, and the injured person have a serious disagreement about what compensation they should receive. And then a judge or or a jury decides for both sides what compensation should be received. Um, So, I mean, I don't know what what can be fairer than that, that if you can't agree, you have an independent body decide for both sides uh, what compensation you should receive. And I think it really is about uh, two factors, in my view. It's about some mismanagement on the part of ICBC that's led to its current situation, as well as... Uh, you know, governments using it as a bit of an ATM in the past uh, to take money out in order to use it for other ne- other government needs. I think that's what's led to the uh, current problem, and and uh, unfortunately, uh, not at fault. Injured people in the future are going to be are going to have to pay for that.
1: All right, uh, we will leave it there. Rick McMillan, thank you so much for your time.
4: Pleasure to be with you.
1: Rick McMillan is a personal injury lawyer with CBM Lawyers, also a former RCMP officer.